seven years ago this issue has plagued us. And the reality is it's all my fault. And I take full responsibility for this. I have this habit of choosing terrible sleeping pillows. I just cannot choose a good pillow for us to use. You know, you go to a store and there's just rows and rows and rows of different types of pillows. You know, you've got memory foam pillows, synthetic pillows, feathered down pillows, and the list goes on and on. There's just too much choice. And part of the problem is, I think this is the real root issue here, is I love a discount. <laughs> and so whenever they stick, you know, the 50% off sign for two-for-one pillows, I was like, that's a great deal. It's going to be great. I've got to get those ones. Um, but we try and get new pillows every year, and I just cannot choose a comfortable pillow. You know, a few months back, I saw a great deal on these feather-down pillows, and I thought, who wouldn't want to sleep on these little fluffy clouds? And it just turns out like the feathers just go, move out to the sides, and your head's just basically on the bed. <laughs> and then the time before that, I saw these like memory foam bamboo pillows, and it was like, these look so comfortable, it's going to like mould to the shape of your head. But no, it actually felt like you fell asleep on the arm of the couch and you got this crook neck because um, it just was so hard. So understandably so, I've been uh, retired from pillow shopping. That's now Clyde's job. It shouldn't be that hard to choose a good pillow. It shouldn't be. Surely it's a bit easier. Am I the only one here? Maybe I am. But it, it shouldn't be that hard, but it is, for me anyway. And I think if we're honest with ourselves when it comes to prayer, it shouldn't be that difficult. But it is. It shouldn't be that challenging to have a vibrant prayer life. But it is. It shouldn't be that difficult and challenging to to commune regularly with God. But it is. It shouldn't be that tricky to fix our attention on Him just for a few moments each day. But I don't know about you, but I think it is. And this passage that we're going to delve deep into this morning is going to show that prayer is challenging. And I think it, it sheds some light on why that is and how to overcome that. So let's look again at the passage with that in mind. And I'm going to read, yeah, Luke 22 to 39 to 46. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone throw beyond them. He knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he went back to the disciples and he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. 
So what's going on here in this passage is that it was, it's in the context of them just finishing the Passover, the Jewish festival of the Passover. Um, and we've kind of skipped over uh, the, the Last Supper as we've continued this, um, this series in Luke. But we need to remember that that's just happened. Um, and they would remember, you know, the nation's exodus um, from Egypt. And specifically, when the Lord passed over the houses of the Israelites, who had the blood of a lamb on their doorposts, sparing their firstborn son. And that was the thing that got Pharaoh to let them go. So Jesus and the disciples have just celebrated this. This meal, as we see it now, is known as the Last Supper. And so they've gone after that, they've gone to a hill called the Mount of Olives. And the other Gospels tell us that more specifically, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane at the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus told his disciples to pray. Why? To pray. That they don't fall into temptation, but they fall asleep. They don't pray. Jesus then went off a little more and prayed this really significant prayer. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus was in serious distress. He was in anguish as he prayed this prayer. And an angel came and helped him. And after praying, Jesus found the disciples asleep, woke them up and told them to keep praying that they would not fall into temptation. And this idea that that Jesus is encouraging them to pray so they don't fall into temptation is the first point I'd like to explore this morning. There's... Surely they would have had this compulsion to fall asleep. But Luke here explains that it wasn't because they were necessarily physically tired. They were exhausted from sorrow. So what was the the temptation that Jesus was referring to? You know, Jesus could just be referring to temptation in general. And maybe he is. But I think the context points to a more specific temptation. And I think Jesus gives us an idea a few verses before in verse 31 of Luke 22. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. So Satan has sought to have the disciples for his own. He wanted to lead them astray, lead them away from Jesus and Jesus was asking them to pray that they would not give in to the devil's temptations. And, and this moment, this Garden of Gethsemane prayer moment, is a critical moment in Jesus' lead up to the cross. And it had the potential for everything to go wrong. You know, the very next verse of this chapter uh, that we're reading it begins to speak about Jesus' arrest. And remember a few weeks back where we looked at how Jesus came into Jerusalem like a king. People were expecting this uprising. People were expecting Jesus to lead this rebellion, uh, to free the Israelite people from Roman rule. And the disciples were ready for a fight. And that's what they were expecting. But that's exactly what Jesus was trying to avoid. And I think the temptation here that Jesus wants them not to fall into is this temptation. 
that the disciples would take things into their own hands, that they would fight, maybe even die to prevent the, rest, the arrest of Jesus. But it was God's plan that, for the disciples to go and make more disciples. They couldn't die or, or be arrested. That, that wasn't God's plan. It's not what happened. John's Gospel explains that when Jesus was arrested, Simon Peter draws his sword, cuts off some poor fellow's ear, um, and, and Jesus is telling him, no, like, calm down. He's ready for a fight. Jesus says, put your sword away. I need to drink the cup the Father has given me. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to lead a rebellion, but I'm going to suffer instead. So I think that's what the temptation here that Jesus wants them to be ready for. The temptation to pervert the mission of God. To make Jesus coming into something else. You know, Christ's first coming was never about this geopolitical kingdom, a physical kingdom, this new government, but rather establishing God's rule and reign in the hearts of people who might believe, repent, and trust in Him. The temptation is to make our faith a means to building our own kingdom, a means to see our own agendas fulfilled, or a claim that our agenda is to be His. Jesus didn't come to establish a political party or a political policy. He didn't come to establish a building for us to worship in or for us to uh, modify our behavior. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. To win souls of people like you and me. So church, I want to encourage us this morning to not let, let's not get sidetracked. You know, and good intentions just don't cut it. I'm sure Peter's intentions were good. He loved Jesus. He wanted to defend him. But his good intentions were not enough. See, I think that a community only has real meaning when it's carrying out its true function. If the church is no longer carrying out its mission, the mission of Jesus, it's lost its purpose. It's no longer relevant. And I kind of think it's, it kind of just becomes the appendix of the body of Christ. It's just this useless appendage. It sounds harsh, but that's what Jesus says in the Sermon of the Mount. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. See, our personal agendas take over and the mission is lost. And often that results in the community being lost as well. And if you've been a Christian long enough, if you've been around church long enough, you've seen that happen. So Jesus is stirring the disciples to pray that they wouldn't fall into temptation that they wouldn't pervert, the, pervert Jesus' mission and turn it into something it's not. So church, we too need to pray. We need to pray that we would continue to carry out the mission of God. And I don't say this because I think we're off the mark or because I fear that it's going to happen to us, not at all. 
We need to pray because Scripture tells us that there's a very real enemy who seeks to destroy us. So church, we need to pray that we would not fall into temptation, that we would faithfully carry out the mission of God. Did anyone else during primary school have times, tables, battles? Was that just, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a thing? Good. It wasn't just my primary school. You know, where two students would go to the front of class and the teacher would say a times table. It was like three times nine. And it was a race to whoever answered it first. Um, I, for one, never won. I was terrible at maths. I have always not been great. And, you know, once we were allowed to use calculators at school, that was just the best. Um, but I actually, probably because of that, I never learnt my times tables. I still don't know them. Like, just last Friday night, um, I was out with the Year 12 Boys Connect groups, and we got HSPs from the kebab shop, uh, kebab shop and luckily, uh, one of the boys who's great at maths, I won't embarrass him, but he knows who he is, was able to do the times tables um, to figure out how to split the bill. And so... We relied on him, and we're very thankful that he was there. But the, my point is that I still don't know my times tables. I guess I found maths later, and because of that, I found maths later in life pretty, pretty challenging, probably because I actually never learnt the basics. And I wonder if we go through the Christian life, battling with temptation, unable to align our will to God's will, maybe it's also because we've never learnt the basics. Jesus gives us a real simple instruction on where to start about how to deal with temptation. Pray. Simply pray. Talk to Jesus about it. Talk to Jesus about what's going on in your heart and in your mind. And I think we can treat prayer sometimes as an insignificant part of the Christian life. But prayer is is like an oxygen tank to a scuba diver. It's the lifeblood of the Christian. And it's through prayer that God sustains us. It's through prayer that God strengthens us. Just like in our passage where we see God sends an angel to strengthen Jesus. It's also through prayer that we're able to submit to the will of God. Where we're able to come to the place in our relationship with God where we can say genuinely, not my will, but yours be done. But prayer isn't just asking for things that we want. Like God is come some genie in a bottle and we get three wishes. No, it's not like that. And God isn't just like a vending machine. We go, E6, all right, thank you. It's not like that where we just pick what we want. Prayer is asking God for what he has already promised us in Scripture. And, it, and through that we align our hearts to his. So, and that leads us to talking about Jesus' prayer. Let's look at that. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. This cup is referring to the events that would take place on Good Friday. See, it's not just this stress of bearing an excruciating death. That, that Jesus was worrying about. It wasn't just the death that Jesus was troubled by, but it was the kind of death. 
And not just by that, not just the crucifixion, while horrible that, as it is, there was actually something more to it, of why Jesus was in such anguish. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He is so stressed, he thought he could die from the grief of it all. So I want to mention three things that I think are beyond the physical death and beyond the physical mocking and beyond the rejection from his friend, from his friends, beyond the earthly things that caused him such intense anguish. The first one is that on the cross, Jesus bore the world's sin. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. All of the world's sin, all the terrible stuff, he took it on himself. Someone who was perfect, clean, who'd never sinned before, he took that, that revolting all sin all on himself. And the thought of that, that he was going to have to do that, was something that caused him such intense anguish. The second thing is that on the cross he was forsaken by God. He prays. He lets out with a loud cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus really genuinely experienced separation from the Father. Estrangement from God on the cross. And the third is that on the cross he became a curse. Galatians 3:13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For if Jesus was to really save us from the penalty we deserved, Jesus really did have to experience everything a damned soul would have to experience. He experienced the loss of God's love and presence. He faced the dreadfulness of hell. And that's why Jesus prays that the Father would would make an alternative solution. Jesus didn't want to die. He's human. He didn't want to experience hell. But Jesus knows that this is the only feasible way that the world can be saved. And so he continues his prayer, yet not my will, but yours be done. And in that prayer, Jesus unifies his will with the will of the Father. And this prayer shows that Jesus chose the cross. This isn't cosmic child abuse like some would allege. He not only consented, but initiated his own sacrifice on the cross. And God the Father shares the pain in this. He's not enjoying this either. Jesus chose the cross. And he chose it despite the literal hell he had to endure. Obedience to God's will won't always feel easy. And Jesus shows us that going through a period of suffering is a normal part of going through with God's will. Has God been prompting you to align your will to his in an area of your life? 
You know, if someone had the ability to listen to your prayers, what would you think they would pick up on? What would they notice? Would your prayers be characterized by submission like Christ's? Or maybe by excuses? Would your prayers be prayers that are like Jesus' prayer, a submission to God's will? Or a running away, an abdication from God's will? I think our prayers might sound maybe a little bit like this. Take this cup from me, I'm too old, or I'm too young. Take this cup from me, I'm already overcommitted as it is. I don't have the time, I don't have the money. Take this cup from me, I need to buy a house. Or if I've already got a house, I need a bigger house or a better house. Take this cup from me, I want kids first. Or if I've already got kids, I want older kids Take this cup from me, I've already done my part, it's someone else's turn now. Take this cup from me, I need to finish my education. You know, I think living in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, I think we tend to seek our, our will, seek to align our will to the will of the Australian dream of a dual income, two and a half kids and a home ownership, instead of aligning our will to God's divine will. Jesus didn't experience the terribleness of hell, having to bear the repulsiveness of sin of the world and the darkness from estrangement from God. Jesus didn't experience all of that so we could just have a comfortable life. He set into motion his mission to save the world and commissions us his followers, to continue to carry out his mission of reconciliation. No matter how challenging or or difficult that might be. Many of you may know the story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. In the 1950s, they moved to Ecuador, where Jim wanted to go to the unreached tribe of the Orca people. And after discovering their location, Jim and four other missionaries went to meet them. And after initial friendly meeting, the native warriors then speared them to death. Elizabeth was now a widow, with her youngest only 10 months old. You can only imagine how she felt about the Orca people. Maybe the resentment, the anger the grief. Do you think she really wanted to go back and face the people who killed her husband in cold blood? But she aligned her will to God's will. And so she persisted with the Orca people. Elizabeth connected with two Orca women who taught her the language and which eventually enabled her to live with the Orca people for two years. Though through her, she introduced the tribe to Jesus, and many came to faith, even some who had killed her husband. I can only speculate, but I can imagine she would have prayed some prayers that reflected Jesus' words here. Not my will, but yours be done. What areas of your life do you need to submit to God's will? 
And this passage shows us where to start and how to get through it by prayer. But not just any prayer. Let me just finish with this. Humble prayer. We need to be humble before God in our prayer. James 4.6 says, God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. If our prayers are proud prayers, God will oppose us. So let's come before God with humility. Not seeking God to do what we want Him to do in our lives, but seeking to align our will with His. Jesus demonstrated incredible humility in this time. Philippians 2, 6 and 8 puts it really well. Who, being Jesus being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in the human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even on a cross. What humility! That Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the King of Kings, whom all things were made for and through, that Jesus chose self-sacrifice over self-preservation. He chose to serve instead of being on it. He submitted instead of exercising his privilege. And if you're familiar with Philippians 2, you'll know what verse 5 is says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Jesus demonstrates extreme humility, and Paul exhorts us to do the exact same, regardless of how uncomfortable it is. So in our relationships with our family, in our workplaces, in our schools, with our friends, with your neighbours, choose Self-sacrifice over self-preservation. Choose to serve over being honoured. And choose to submit instead of exercising privilege. In our prayers, we need to come before God with the same attitude. Asking ourselves, God, how can I sacrifice for you? God, how can I serve you? God, how can I submit to you. So in close, let us together pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. So as Jeanette comes up to lead us in communion, let us come before God in humble submission.